Um, so uh, one of the things that, uh, that I wanted to encourage you to do, now this is just uh, my recommendation, is that, uh, again, I, I kind of you know, joke a little bit about Ecclesiastes and reading through it. I would highly recommend that you read through the book each week during this class, if you can. If you are like me, and uh, I, I found myself reading the same section over and over and over again as I'm trying to decipher what it's talking about, have it read to you. Um, now, I mean, what I mean, that audio, okay? I mean, I guess you can ask them in your house to read it to you. Um, but uh, but uh, that's what I, I typically will do. I turn it on like audio on my phone or my computer, and I just follow along. It, I, I tend to follow along better with it that way. Uh, and, and so I, uh, you know, I do it all in one shot or do it during the week. But one thing, if you've ever struggled with understanding any portion of Ecclesiastes or a big portion of it, that... Uh, I have realized that after going through the book and after going through just these first couple classes that I put together, a lot more of it makes a lot more sense as to where the writer was going with this. So I encourage you to do that. Um, and so uh, please understand that today is going to be a basic overview of the book and not any, we're going to delve into any of the deep uh, meanings of any of it or any of the concepts. Uh, we're going to do that later as we go through. Again, this is a nine-week class, so... Uh, we'll be going through the different portions of this. Also, uh, we will be following kind of the order of the book. I may mix it up a little bit, but uh, I haven't decided. But we, we are not going to be going through a chapter-verse kind of thing. It's not going to be, you know, tomorrow or next week we're going to be on chapter one. It's not going to do that. We're going to do it more thematic than we are in, in chapter. That's why I encourage you to read through the whole book each week as opposed to just reading a chapter of it. Or something because we may not, it, it does kind of follow uh, to an extent, but not entirely. So uh, that's just a, just some, a recommendation. So, um, you know, we usually expect whenever we read through a book, we read through the Bible, that we are looking for something that gives us a feeling of comfort, uh, makes us happy, it, it, it's content. Uh, you know, it, it, it makes us feel like, okay, I, I'm accomplishing what I'm, I'm looking for here. And uh, Ecclesiastes does not do that. Right? It does not do that. It is a book that is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. It is meant to make you, uh, as the, the title of Corey's book, it's a document designed to disturb. And it, it is meant to be that way. And, there is, and so we're going to be looking at why that is, why the writer was doing that. Uh, one of my, uh, I found a, um, uh, uh, the, the little portion here I thought I was going to read to you, um, but, uh, you know, this, because this book can be difficult to understand sometimes, um, it can also be, uh, even send conflicting signals sometimes, and so I, I found this, uh, a writer, a, uh, one of the, an article that I was reading, I thought this was really good, so, it says, the major interpretive problems of Ecclesiastes is to understand its apparent internal contradictions and vicissitudes of thought. At times, the preacher seems to be gloomy, pessimistic, a skeleton at the feast. Everything comes under his lashing scorn. Laughter, drink, possessions, sex, work, wisdom, honors, riches, children, even righteousness. Yet at the other point, he urges that we should enjoy life, that there is nothing better than to eat well, enjoy our labor, receive it with gladness, the riches God gives us, but be content if he gives none. So I, I, I thought that was very good, just because it, it really does seem to bounce back and forth between this is a, uh, you know, the, there's really no meaning here, but, but be happy with it. And, and, it, and so we're, we're going to try to kind of decipher uh, where all that is and, 
kind of how we, we read into that, how, what we can learn from it, what we can pull from this. Um, so as I said in my the, uh, Thessalonians class a couple weeks ago, I always like doing the intro, the first class. It's always fun to do because it, it, I like doing the setup. I like doing the, uh, the, the beginnings of this, uh, of the books, kind of where they come from. I think that's a, uh, a big downfall whenever you, a lot of people will study or read through Scripture is that they don't really understand what it's talking about because they don't know where the book came from or why they were doing it. And uh, understanding that, I think, is important. So, uh, first of all, uh, Ecclesiastes is has multiple classifications, depending on what culture you're coming from, depending on what language you're reading it in, it's going to have different, it's going to be classified under different books. In our case, in English Old Testament, it's often kind of lumped in with the books of poetry, which is interesting because it's not written in poetic form, it's written in prose, um, but it is usually lumped in with things, with the books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. Uh, kind of makes sense because a lot of people believe this was written by Solomon or in the nature of Solomon, so that uh, kind of makes sense that it would go along with Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Um, but um, other than that, it doesn't really have a poetic idea to it, so not real sure why they did that, why they lumped that there. But if you're coming from the Hebrew side, from the Jewish side, it's going to actually have two classifications. One is from what's called uh, Megillot, which is known as the Five Scrolls, or the Writings. These are the uh, the books that are read, there's five of them, that are read during the Jewish feasts. In Ecclesiastes' case, this was a book that was read during the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths. Uh, the other ones are Ruth, Esther, Lamentations, and Song of Solomon. And so they, they're often lumped in with that. But... To kind of go back into the final one, the, the main way we look at this, and this is the one that probably fits the best, is it falls into what they call the wisdom literature, and uh, where we can learn from that. The reason they lump it into that one, or they categorize it with that one, is because uh, in Jewish culture, there are typically two uh, ways of looking at wisdom literature. There is optimistic and pessimistic. The optimistic side is going to be like Proverbs, where you can... Uh, you can kind of see God's reward for, for being uh, righteous, for doing what is correct, for living the right life. And then you have the pessimistic side, which is going to be more like Job, which is a, you know, does anything in life make any difference? Does it matter what we do? Uh, and things like that. Now, if you take a guess, uh, Ecclesiastes definitely falls into the pessimistic side of the wisdom literature. But I don't really like pessimistic side. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that view. Uh, because uh, me personally, I, a lot of people say, well, your pessimism is that's a, uh, you know, that's just a negative person. That's not necessarily what pessimism is. My experience is, is that it's usually optimists who say that it's like, well, I'm so positive, he must be negative. It, it's, that's not really what it is. Pessimism in this case is typically more just realistic. It, it's just <coughs> looking at it. This is just the way the life is. You just need to understand that and don't live in a way that where we completely throw off. Realism, and that's really more of where that that tends to come from. So, um, and just as a, as a just as a reminder, if you have a comment or a question, please feel free. I know I tend to, and sometimes in classes I tend to just start going and I don't stop. I know I did that with the Thessalonians class. That wasn't really my intent, but kind of happened that way. So, if you need to interrupt me, please, please feel free. Um, so, as for the author, uh, the author is traditionally. Uh, accredited with uh, with Solomon, even though most scholars believe that it probably wasn't him that actually wrote the book. 
but uh, a lot of times it is kind of lumped in with the three that he he wrote, or Song of Solomon he, he wrote when he was young, Proverbs whenever he was middle-aged, and then Ecclesiastes when he got older. Uh, it, the, the point, though, is that if it wasn't him that wrote it, it was definitely written by someone like him, or it was written by someone that was meant to be like it's, it's like it's Solomon that wrote this. It's like coming from his mindset and his words. So I think it's a safe bet that uh, if, as you're reading through this, if you look at it from the mind of Solomon, if you look at it from his eyes, his view, that is definitely a good way to look at this. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see multiple uh, examples of why we think that. Uh, chapter 1 says the son of David came to Jerusalem. Verse 1 and verse 12 says king of Israel in Jerusalem. He speaks a lot of his achievements, his wisdom, and his riches. And so it, it seems to be it's either, it either is Solomon writing it or someone trying to be uh, right from his point of view. So if you take a step back and you actually look at this book from Solomon's point of view, you can really make a lot of connections there as to kind of why he wrote this the way he did. Solomon spends his entire life trying to find himself, trying to find out what it is that, what, where is he going with this? Uh, and, and a lot of people, a lot of scholars will talk about that's the plague of having the wisdom that he asked for was because he spent all of his time trying to make sense of what he understood so well. And, and, it was, and that's really what Ecclesiastes is. It, the problem was is that he looked in all the wrong places. Yes? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, i got to go back to the author. Uh, in 1 and 12, both say the preacher. And he didn't mention that. So I was going to ask. <coughs> Give me four lines. Pardon? Give me four lines, and I'll tell you what it is. Okay. <laughs> I'm almost there. So, um, But, uh, yes, that's a good point. Uh, it talks about the preacher. So we will talk about where that comes from. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's important to understand that he was looking for meaning. He was looking for the meaning of life, but he couldn't, he couldn't find it. He was looking for it in all the wrong places. Uh, one uh, writer said he had tried everything and found nothing. He had experienced all that life had to offer and come up empty. And so, and this is really what Ecclesiastes was. This is where he was, he was coming from. And so this, while this is a book written for a specific person, a specific person's life, it, it definitely was meant for us. It was written for us. It was written for people to understand that we can learn a lot for, from Solomon's example and we, that we don't repeat the mistakes that he made. That was the, that's the simple idea. This is why the book is often, and rightfully so, put into wisdom literature. Because this is we can learn from what he did. We'll go back and look at it. So Now, as for the title... Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, this comes from the Hebrew word Kohelet, uh, which is uh, most often just to assemble. It's often translated to be the leader of the assembly or the person who speaks in front of the assembly. In other words, the preacher. Uh, that's, where, that's, that's where we get that from. Uh, so Ecclesiastes basically means the preacher. And that's uh, kind of the, uh, the, the, the general gist of where that comes from, the person speaking to everyone and, and trying to impart their their knowledge or their, their wisdom uh, to everyone. So, um, the, uh, the, the next part of this is that it, before we kind of move into the, the content and the purpose and, and why the book was written, it's important to understand how to interpret a lot of this, 
how to interpret a lot of what, I mean, what script, how to interpret wisdom literature in general, uh, but especially in Ecclesiastes. Uh, the, uh, there's a number of verses that are, can kind of cause pause. Like, why, why did they say that? Like, where, where's he going with this one? Uh, for example, uh, when, he talk, when he goes through the seasons, the very famous uh, section in chapter 3, uh, when he says there is, uh, everything has, there is a season, uh, he talks about there is a time to a, a kill and a time to heal, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Is, is he saying, well, it's okay to hate someone and kill them? Is he saying, is it okay to, you know, to hate someone and go to war with them? Is that okay? Uh, is, you know, also in uh, chapter 3, I, so I saw there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. Well, that, I understand rejoicing in your work, but is it, is there's nothing better? That's the best thing you can ever do in your life is rejoice in the work you do? Um, is it uh, chapter 7, the day of death is better than the day of birth? That seems a bit harsh. Um, you know, is that really the best way to go about things? Do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Okay, I personally live by that one. Uh, don't make yourself too wise. Um, that's, you know, I've spent a lot of time in that, but uh, that's chapter 7. So the question is, is how do we translate those? How do we read that? How do we understand those verses when we're going through this? There's a couple of things you need to remember. First of all, and we'll hit on this later, this is not a book of law. Okay? This is not a book that is meant to be a, this is the law of the, of Israel, this is the law of God. That was not what it was meant to be. Uh, we'll hit on that a little bit more as we go on. Also, it's important to remember figurative language. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, the wisdom literature is in similes and metaphors and hyperbole, and, and so keep that in mind. Uh, it's important to be able to recognize that. So, as much as you want to believe that verse eight eighteen in chapter three is literal, it is not. Okay. Verse 18 in chapter 3 is not literal. Men are not actually beasts. Okay? And that is figurative. It is not actually, that's not meant to be a literal point. Okay, so. Uh, and then also it's important to remember the purpose. Why was this written? Wisdom literature is written with the idea of being able to help us understand how to live our lives better. Alright, that was the point. That's why it was being written. This is not just knowledge. But it's about correct discernment. It's about being able to take the life, take information, take knowledge, and be able to understand what it can do for us and make good decisions. You're more likely to live right, think right, do right, be right, whatever, uh, allowing if you listen to what this is trying to teach you. If you to help learn from the mistakes and be able to make better decisions uh, with, with uh, your life, um, this is an important factor that it is a it's it's about uh, advice as we'll talk about later um, you know the there a lot of the books of the Bible are written to reveal God's eternal plan uh, his eternal plan of salvation wisdom literature though is about helping us to understand how to live life while we're here on this earth again this is the idea of you might call it inspired advice this is a, this is an inspired book, so it's a this is advice on how to to live, or in this case, how not to live, what not to do, and uh, not what not to put all of your time and energy in. And the great thing is, is that like everything else in Scripture, this is timely and timeless. It is something that we can use today. This is not something that will only their culture really could use this. 
That is not what this is, this is doing. It's something we can definitely use today. And if we are wise, we will listen to what Ecclesiastes have to, has to offer and take it to heart, put it to practice. And, and if it does, it will undoubtedly mean a happier life, a, a possibly a more successful life if we do that. And, uh, and, and if we <clears throat> stop and listen. It's also important to realize, too, that while sometimes verses may seem contradictory within, inside of itself or with other parts of Scripture, it is not. It's important to always look at the uh, other uh, biblical teachings that are out there, look and see what exactly is it being talked about. A um, little side note, I made a little note this morning on this. One of the biggest, in my opinion, coming from education, one of the biggest downfalls that I think we're seeing today is moving forward is uh, a lot of people say, well, kids can't read. Now, kids can read. 99.9% of kids can read. Okay, that, That's not a problem. The problem is they have no idea what they read. Their reading comprehension levels are extremely low because we, we just don't have them read. The belief now in society is that we don't need to read large volumes of things. We can learn everything by reading small snippets. Well, the problem is, is that that doesn't give you the ability to comprehend what it is you're reading. And that's one of the biggest issues that we run into in with, with kids and I mean, well into adults is we just simply don't read that much anymore. And the biggest downfall of that is the, the inability to comprehend what you're reading. And so uh, we love to do verse plucking. I mean, this has been wrong for this has been around forever. But we love to do that today. We love to take a single verse out, pluck it out, read it, and be like, well, look, see, it says that verse right here. But you need to understand the whole context. You need to understand everything that's going on in this. Ecclesiastes can be a very difficult book to understand if you don't know, understand where he was coming from, where the writer was coming from, and what he was talking about. And if you understand that, if you can understand the premise, which is today's class, it makes reading the, the book a lot easier because now... Every time he says something, you're like, well, what does that mean? Now you can, okay, I think I see where he's going with this. And you can comprehend better as to what's, what's going on. For example, uh, chapter 7, verse 16 says, do, and we've already read this, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Okay? So, first of all, this does not, um, well, we can conclude that this is a, the author is telling us to do something. Um, I'll tell you what, let's, let's do this. I'm talking too much. What do you think that means? Do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Don't see yourself as overly righteous. Don't see yourself as having all the answers. Okay. This is all talking about how you perceive yourself and your relationship to eternity. Okay, Don? Say not make yourself be better than God or above God. Don't make yourself better than God or above God. I think it's saying don't put too much on your on yourself. Okay. Don't put too much on yourself. Because you expect that you have to be the wise. Okay. I, I kind of I agree with you, but but also disagree a little bit about the negative part of it. It's kind of like the idea of the more you learn about the world. The, the more, uh, really, the more dark sad, becomes, the more sad you, you, you become. I mean, ignorance is truly bliss. 
And so um, I think it, it's it's I think he's looking at it from a cautionary point of view, not necessarily the righteousness part, but the throughout the wisdom part is the more wisdom you gain, it, it is like a double-edged sword in, in, a, in a way. Yep. So I uh, an example that I found in one of the, the readings that I did, and I thought this was uh, this was kind of funny. Uh, that whenever it talks about being overly righteous, it basically it says don't become so righteous or so religious that you forget just basic living. Right. So for example, um, about twenty some odd years ago, there was a very pretty popular saying that went through. Um, this says God take the wheel. I think it was more commonly Jesus take the wheel um, was the idea. Well. And on a surface, yeah. that's you know that's a pretty good that's a pretty good lesson. I mean, just uh, allow God to take over in your life, allow God to lead you. However, it's not a good idea to be driving down the interstate and looking at your friend and be like, "You want to see what kind of faith I have?" God take the wheel and just let go. Okay, that's not good. That's that's you know I I your faith is admirable. I, I commend that, but that's not a good way of looking at things. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in trying to show others around us and prove to others around us how righteous and how faithful we are that we forget what it means to just live and uh, just to live on this earth. So, Ryan? Yes? Jesus alluded to that to the Pharisees and scribes when he was kind of in the crowd. I was reading that this past week in John that he says, you know, you're, you're just so overly righteous you forgot love. Um, you're just so you're into the tenth and you're into the, the spices and the offerings, but you forgot judgment and love. You forgot people. You forgot the people that you're supposed to be serving. Go ahead and still do your offering, but come back to what this was all about, which is, you know, and that's what it means to me. The end of verse 18 says, avoid all extremes. So it's called a balance. Yep. Which is Absolutely. Hard to do. <laughs> yes, it is. So uh, before we go into the, the purpose of this, the purpose of the book, why, why it was written, or at least what we can, we can draw from that, it's important to look at a couple of uh, phrases and, and words that come out of this and, and kind of what they mean. The, the, probably one of the more popular ones, the one we tend to see uh, quite a bit through this, is under the sun. And uh, kind of what does he mean by that? Now, again, it's important to remember that the, the, the words are not ultimate truth, these are not law, these are a description of the way things are in life under the sun. All right, that's the idea. And it's, uh, for example, uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 14 says, there is a vanity or futility that takes place on earth, that there, the, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity or futility. Now, first of all, it, when we're looking at the kind of being counter to what other scripture says, this does not go counter to what Paul says in Romans 2, where he says, render to each one according to his works. What he's saying here is that this is just life. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Right? That's just the way life is. That is the way things are here under the sun, that here on earth. The, the, the writer is attempting to give us a glimpse of reality in hopes that his readers will take a long, hard look at what life is like under the sun, uh, here on earth, as it goes through, that we, we should never ignore reality. 
that we should never ignore what is going to happen. That is, and we've, we've all had that. We've probably questioned that ourselves. We've all had times in our lives, or we've known friends that had times in our lives where things happen and you couldn't, you, you can't explain it to them. All right? And that's what he is trying to say, that sometimes things just happen. And there is, now we could go into a much deeper dive as to why these things happen, which we don't have time to do. Uh, but that's, that's basically what he is, he is talking about here. Uh, he explains this in his own writings. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, he says uh, he is intending to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He is reading through and looking through life and studying through life and all the actions of men. And he is going through gain wisdom through knowledge. He is going to try to decipher what, where is the meaning. It's got to be in there somewhere. Where is the meaning? He also later states in chapter 8 that this is exactly what he's doing. He says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. You know, he's looking for a way to discover the universal explanation for everything. He, he's gaining knowledge, he's gaining wisdom, but he's not gaining meaning. He, he, it's, it's all, he, he's, he's understanding that all these things are happening, and we go back to this bad things happen to good people idea. He sees it all happening, but he's not gaining meaning on this. Um, but, uh, you know, consequently, having, having learned so much, uh, he also decides to, to teach. He is going to take what he's learned, he's going to take this knowledge, he's going to take this wisdom, and he's going to teach it around the very end of the book, chapter 12, 9, and 10. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Basically, this book is meant to have, it has basically three, three purposes to it. One, learn the truth about everything. Learn, what, learn the knowledge, learn the wisdom we can, and discover the meaning of life. That was where he starts with this. I'm going to, I want to find out which of these things that's under the sun is going to show me the meaning of life. And once he gets to the end of this study, he is going to, of his life, he is going to teach others what he learns, and he's going to do it in the most, the best possible way to do that. The way to communicate, where he says, find the words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He's going to try to teach people as best he can. Um, this is a very counterculture view today. Uh, we, we, I, I often speak about the fact, being a history teacher, uh, United States, we, we are not real big fans of history. We don't really like history at all. We never really have. Uh, whenever we get to something that we... Uh, you know, where something gets a little bit older, you know, we tear it down, pave it over, build something new. Mm -hmm. right? If you go to other parts of the world, they're, they're proud of things that are around. You know, it always kind of makes me laugh. Um, one of my favorite stories, when the canal was first built and they had the tours, whatever, you know, me, like every good Oklahoman, you know, went out there and jumped on one of the, the boats and took the amazing tour of Oklahoma City. And um, one of the things that made me laugh, though, is they talked about the oldest building in Oklahoma City. It was an old postal building. I think it was built in, I don't remember what it was, like 1920 or something like that. And we were just so proud of that. And I'm just laughing. I'm like, there are buildings in this country that are way older than that. But especially you go to Europe, you go to other parts of the, of the world, and there are buildings that are hundreds of years, hundreds of years older. And thousands of years, thousands of years older. And so it is, it, but we, and so we really struggle with the idea of looking at 
older generations looking at history and learning from the wisdom that they had. And I think this is a two-way street. I'm going to try to step on everybody's toes on this one. Everybody's, uh, I think this is a two-way street. I think younger generations pretty much write off anybody that was born prior to 2000. And I think uh, if you have not ever had someone ask you if you've ever been born back in the 1900s, you have not lived. Okay? So, but, uh, uh, but on the other hand, I think we also live in a culture where when we hit retirement age, we are done. Older generations are like, I retired, I'm done. And we don't turn around and go back into society with the wisdom that we have gained. And uh, because it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with this. And I think that's one of the big downfalls that we have in our society that is not being taught here. This is something that we, we must be aware of. So, yes. Uh, since, since you kind of glossed over it, and maybe not on purpose, but <laughs> chapter 8, verse 9, at the end of it, it said, while man lords it over man to his hurt, about, talking about the, the, the wisdom and everything, the vanity all under the sun. So that could be a sacrifice that you go lording it over people, saying, I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, and lording it over. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, we, we are going to be going back each week and going over different, different themes and, and different uh, concepts and ideas. So we will definitely come back to, 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 to some of this. Unfortunately, we, I, I can't go back into all of those today. I would love to, but then I'll have no more classes to teach. So, the, uh, so uh, one, going into the contents, uh, obviously there is a single word, a single thread that tends to go through the whole book. Right? Vanity. It's all about vanity. He starts out in verse 2, the very, very beginning of this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity, is, is life is vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's, it's a vapor. Uh, you can almost go as far as say life is pointless. At least that's where he is coming at with this. The, the poem that is in chapter 1, 4 through 11, if you've ever actually read through that and, and kind of paid attention to what it's saying... Basically, it's saying that nature, that life, the world is cyclical. It just goes in circles. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't mean anything. It just goes in circles. One of my, uh, my, my opinion, one of the biggest arguments against uh, in procreation versus evolution is the fact that all of nature, except for apparently us, live in a world where there is no accomplishment. Deer do not live to accomplish anything. Deer today have been living the same way they have been living for 3,000 years. If they didn't, we'd never be able to hunt them. Okay? The, I mean, all animals are like that. They don't try to accomplish anything. We do, and that's part of where Solomon is going this, the writer is going on this, sure is do. that we are trying to accomplish. They, they strive to uh, re, uh, procreate. They try, that's, that's their purpose, is to fill the earth. I, I, I agree. I'm not sure if I would call that an accomplishment. As so much as a um, biological form. biological form. Is it, um, is, it, is it not an accomplishment that, that we have children? <laughs> we we celebrate it quite big. I think I, I think the I, uh, celebrating something. I think the striving for the accomplishment is is the the key on this. Um, the question is is that and this is the part we really don't know. Does the animal uh, get upset if it never has children? Or is it just going to continue going through that process over and over and over again? And does it have parties and birthdays whenever it does? 
um, it just it just keeps going. It, it doesn't really know good or bad on that. I think is the uh, the key to that uh, idea. Jim. I was going to with what you're saying. A beaver accomplishes something within its own plan to build a dam. But again, I think what you're saying is it's more it, it's something that's within it's already programmed within the the within the animal right. itself, and, yeah, and that has been the, and that has been the same. Yeah. For for generations. There is so. no morality within any creation of God except humans. Yeah. There is morality within our conscience and our ability to understand sin. No animal understands sin. Uh, a cow eats grass. A cat eats whatever is there, dead or living. Uh, those are not moral choices. Those are just what we're like for non-humans. It's very, very true. So we moving on. So we get to the we get to the uh, kind of the meat of all this at the end of the end of the class. So in essence, whenever it comes to under the sun, in essence, what Solomon is talking about here, the writer is talking about here, is that uh, if it appears that all is in vain, is there anything that gives life meaning? That's really where all of this is. He he just keeps coming back to this over and over again. I, I life is vanity. Life is vain. There, it's it's a vapor. If that's the case, so we're we're just kind of bouncing through. And is there there? And the question, the answer to that is absolutely, absolutely there is. So, and, and so it also, an old side note, which I thought was kind of interesting, this goes back to that quote we said, I said at the very beginning of this. He does make it a point, though, to say, you know, life is vain, life doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning to it. However, since we're destined to be here, <laughs> make the best of it. Live the life the best you can. Look for truth, look for things that are. Uh, that are going to try to make meaning in your life, always try to live. Don't just sit in a chair and stare at a wall, but look for truth in that. And and I think that is where the biggest downfalls of societies tend to be, is that societies go through rotations of where they search for truth, where they search for meaning. Right now, our society is very much wrapped up in fame and popularity. Uh, fame, fortune, popularity is very much part of this. It's not about work. If you go back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, it was very much about work. It was very much about if you work a long periods of days and you really strive in your job, then you are an accomplishment. You are, you are finding meaning in what it is that you're doing. At least that's what was perceived. But over time, all right, we are definitely in a society now where we have kind of gone back from that. Work is not where you find meaning. It is more about popularity, more about fame and fortune. And all of these are in the wrong place. All of these are not where they need to be. Um, one of my favorite lessons that I would do with my students is when we would talk about uh, fame and fortune, I was telling them, you know, fame is fleeting. And they would always get very, because again, remember I taught middle school, so you know, for them it was, oh no, you know, it's, it's all about fame. And I would always ask them, I said, okay, so I go up on the board and I would write down, I want you to tell me the top, and I'd pick a sport, basketball, tell me the top 20 basketball players right now. Who are the best? You know, and you'd always get the same top 10 or 15, but then you'd argue over the last five or so, but for the most part. And then I'd go, okay, let's go back to the 1990s. Give me the top 20 basketball players. The really good athletes, that are the, really, the ones who are really into basketball, could probably eat that out, maybe. They'd at least get 10 or 15. They'd struggle with the last five. And they'd be very, they'd be very proud of themselves. Okay, now let's do the 80s. Now let's do 70s. Now let's do 60s. Eventually get to the point where they're going, 
Yeah, but back then it doesn't. They didn't really do. What you, they start making excuses because they couldn't. They couldn't explain it, right? And they couldn't explain why it was that those people who were so famous are simply not known anymore. All right, they're not that popular anymore. Um, I also loved always talking to middle school kids because, and we tend to do, all, everybody does this. Adults do this too. The kids in particular do this, and the fact that it's uh, be aware that the music you love, the clothes you wear, the hair you have, the hairstyles, all that kind of stuff we don't have, you know, the, all of that is, is not the end all. Right? For a middle school, high school kid, music, there will never be better music. There'll never be better music, period. It just won't ever happen. And I was like, there will be a time. There will be a time. Well, you'll be driving in your car, and your two middle school kids will be sitting in the back seat. And they will be looking at a phone or a yearbook or something like that, and they'll be making fun of your clothes. They're going to make fun of your hair. They're going to make fun of everything about you. And they're going to be asking you to take it off of that oldie station of that music that you listen to, that music that will never end. Okay. So... And so the fame is fleeting, and that's what Solomon is talking about, the writer is talking about here, is that each one of these searches are in vain. You're not going to be able to find what it is that you're looking for, and this is why it's so incredibly important for us to remember that younger generations need to look to older generations for wisdom and understanding, and older generations need to be willing to give that and be willing to show what I have learned in my life. Unfortunately, though, wisdom is not going to solve the problem of meaningless lives, right? Even wisdom is going to be uh, something that we, uh, it will never solve the ideas of, of death. It will never solve the idea of judgment or eternity. Wisdom will not solve these things. However, it does mean that you can live a more, maybe successful life or a happier life or at least a more focused life. If you listen to the wisdom that is out there of things that are coming, um, it's because and you also need to take that wisdom and you need to apply it. You need to actually listen to it and actually apply it in your life. Don't just listen to be like, well, that's really, that's great. That's interesting. But you need to actually apply it to what you are doing so that you don't make the mistakes of those who have come before you. In this case, Solomon or the writer here of listen to my mistakes so that you don't make the same mistakes like I did. I've never been a big fan in my history class of, of talking about that, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. I've never, I was never a big fan of using that statement, but it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I believe wholeheartedly that it will be, we are not far away before you're going to start seeing people who don't know who Hitler was. And if you don't believe me, go around and ask a bunch of kids if they know who Joseph Stalin was. Most of them don't. Okay? We are, we're, we, we, we've got the really high ones. It's kind of like basketball. Everybody knows who Michael Jordan was, but a lot you're getting less and less people who know who Scotty Pippen was. Okay? So it's in and that it's 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 we're we're far, we're not far away from that. We really are not. Well we, we see a lot of that in uh, you know, when you talk about these short things like uh, TikTok and Instagram. I mean they go out and interview college kids that can't name the president or the vice president, uh, you know, currently. So you're, you're right. It's, history can become very fleeting. Yeah. Did, did anybody see the Jeopardy thing? Did you guys see that? With the, uh, the Jeopardy question where it was, uh, it was the, the, Lord, the, the, the model prayer and when the, the answer was hollowed. 
and none of the three knew the, the prayer. Oh wow! So it's um, you know, and it's it's an it's an interesting thing. So uh, moving on very quickly. Um, so it, it, one thing you have to understand: all Ecclesiastes moves towards a, this basic yet very profound truth that it is the only meaningful thing to look for is God. That's the only meaningful thing to look for. That's the only place you're going to be able to find it. That's exactly what he says. The very end of this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear, For God will bring every deed into judgment without every, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The point of the book is not to show us the meaninglessness of existence, but to show the meaninglessness of existence apart from God. Okay, that is the purpose of this. That's where we're going with this. It, you know, the the inability for us to be able to find meaning in life without God is where we need to focus as we're looking for this, as we're going through these different pieces and these different parts of the under the sun, the life of man, and we're looking. People look for a lot of meaning in those. And we need to remember that all of that stuff is vanity. It's all in vain. Um, and we can find it better. Acts 17 says, And he made from uh, one every and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So this is the reason why Ecclesiastes is associated with or uh, uh, categorized with wisdom literature. Because this is where we can learn who we're supposed to be actually focusing on. So next week, we're going to be looking at the idea of work and uh, the, the vanity that comes into focusing everything on labor, on work and job. So thank you for the comments. Appreciate it. Hope everybody has a wonderful Wonderful day.